Everybody, welcome to another installment of Show to View with Mike G, the show of life, the show of Brazil, soccer, communist, Romania, patents, and most of all, Cachaca. Today's guest is the founder and creator of Novo Fogo Cachaca, Mr. Dragos Axinte. He's lived an amazing life. We touch on a lot of different things. Growing up in communist Romania, the kinds of things that we in the States really take for granted that we have every day, such as hot water. I think it's a time to be modest and humble as many people are being disenfranchised as we speak in this weird political climate of the current United States. But beyond that, Dragos is an insanely intelligent guy learning languages, learning to write. Working with his father to develop multiple patents for really amazing technologies that ultimately paved the way for his entrepreneurial spirit and the founding of Novo Fogo Cachaca. We sip some amazing expressions of the Brazilian spirit, and we get to know a lot about Dragos himself. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this great chat with Dragos Exente. Naturally, by default of the job itself, the sleeping is about hours, the eating is about hours. There's probably a lot of smoking to, to cut down stress. And so those folks never find their way to the gym. And on their day off, they find themselves bar hopping to their friends' bars. Right. So that's no, that's no good. You know, ever since I've, I came into this industry in 2010, I've made friends with bartenders and I've seen them come and go fast. Yeah. And that's horrible for everyone. It really is because they burnt themselves out. They need to get away from the industry in order to stay alive sometimes. Right. And we lose a customer. We have to invest in a new relationship with the new bartender, the replacement mm. next year. That sucks for everyone, really. So we know we have to spend money on marketing. Might as well spend it on things that allow these folks the opportunity to find that personal sustainability, stay in their job, get serious about longevity, right. and develop that relationship with us too. And they, they, do, they are loyal to us for these things because we're not offering them money or trips. We're saying, I'm just going to take you to yoga today. That's right. Which is a great piece. And it obviously resonates really well in Austin. But Absolutely. for you, being, how many weeks, roughly, or how many months are you on the road now? Kind of. Uh, it's a lot. But, it's a um, lot, right? Yeah, I would say that I have a rule of not traveling more than two weeks, uh, more than one week at a time. But I'm starting to travel <laughs> 10 days at <laughs> yeah. a time. And, and I want a week at home. Uh, but I'm actually getting a little tired, uh, yeah. and so I need to rest a little more. I'm in my 40s now, and how do you, I'm more how susceptible to. What's what's the best way that you know to take care of yourself? Yeah, yeah. Is it water? Is it I rest? Know, I know it, but do I do it? That's a good oh, that's question. a good point, yeah. yeah. Well, I think uh, rest is the first medicine and the most important medicine. Um, everything starts there. The immune system gets built when you sleep. Sure. And if you don't sleep enough, your immune system does not get rebuilt every day properly. Uh, obviously, eating well is is important too, mm. and um, I try to eat uh, as little red meat as I can, mm-hmm. with the exception of when I'm in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we have other <laughs> options here, actually. Yeah, and um, 
uh, a lot of fresh things, obviously. You yeah. know, there's a saying that the more colorful the plate, the healthier it is. Absolutely. I believe antioxidants. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. And then uh, on in terms of alcohol consumption, obviously I drink because I'm in the industry. But as we were saying earlier, you have to learn how to drink properly. Right. And I have a lot of tricks of the trade on moderating that sleight of hand. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that. I would say that at uh, at, at the high, I average um, a drink per day. And that is a high. I try to I try to actually not drink several days a week, so I yeah. give my body the opportunity to to recover. Um, I go to festivals like Tales of Cocktail. I probably have two sips of something during yeah. the whole the whole week. So you've learned. I I have yeah for yeah. sure yeah. And also you know staying busy helps you sure stay sharp and not fall into consumption. I think that's important too. It's a difficult balance at times, but I think the more that you're doing. And the more that you're thinking, the more you're developing, socializing, all these things as a brand yeah. owner that we have to do. Yeah. Takes your mind off the booze a little bit. Even oh, though you're talking sure. about the booze, but it's right. more about am I crafting the right message? Am I connecting with people? And then it takes you out of the party mode. That's right. Yeah. And by the way, when I told you that I'm taking antibiotics, I am taking antibiotics. So that's not, that's why <laughs> I'm not drinking. However, that would be that amazing. Is a, that is yeah. an excuse. That's a great excuse. Used often by a lot of brand ambassadors. However, there is only really one commercial antibiotic that reacts poorly with alcohol. The rest have little to no side effects. That's right. So that's, I did ask. Yeah. I did ask the doctor last night. He said, eh, it's okay, actually, if you drink a little, but it's still a good excuse. No, understood. <laughs> and obviously, I'm not going <laughs> to. Yeah. Pro- Prove it, Dragos. Prove it that you're taking one of those antibiotics. Well, so this story starts in an interesting place that I've never been. It starts in a time that I can't even relate to. And you grew up in Romania. I, I believe you moved, it was around 9 or 10 to L.A. Is that about right? Uh, in 91, I was 91. 18, actually. 18, oh, jeez, yeah. okay. So, yeah, I graduated from high school. That's in- incredible. So it's a, a massive journey. I imagine it's about the family business. But tell me what, as a regular white dude in Texas... What is it like growing up in communist Romania? Yeah, it was communist my yeah. entire, well, almost my entire life. The last couple of years were what's called neo-communist. Okay. Um, yeah, 70s and the 80s were pretty harsh, actually. Um, there was a dictatorship happening in yeah. Romania, communist dictatorship, and that meant that the president really didn't take notes from anybody. Just did what he wanted to do. Right? Yeah, and there was a lot of abuse. You know, we um, grew up without food. I would probably have meat once or twice a month, really. And maybe a kilo of meat would cost one of my parents' monthly salaries. That's incredible. Right? Um, we didn't have hot water, although we lived in the capital city. Yeah. We didn't have gas or heat and those kinds of things. And Any siblings? Yeah, I have an older sister. Older sister. And I do remember um, when I was in high school, there was a particularly cold winter, and we really lacked things to keep us alive. Um, but there was hot water... In the mornings, my mother noticed for about 15 minutes between 5 and 5.15. Mm-hmm. So she'd wake us up and go take a shower and then go back to bed because that was the only opportunity to get warmed up and get cleaned up too. So uh-huh. those kinds of things really, um, you know, when you're a kid, you try to navigate and you don't think too much of them. But one winter I got really cold and I've been cold ever since really. Uh-huh. Um, it, it can leave a lasting imp- impression on, on your body too. To your so, bones, I suppose. Yeah, I just, you know, I mean, I love to take long hot showers because they comfort me. they're cleansing <laughs> they are yeah yeah right um so that was pretty hard and then um for uh, for my family in particular it was harder because we had fam- family in the relatives in the u.s and mm. also in france so we were a naturally bad citizen we were a target for just a lot of surveillance so 
we knew if you picked up the phone, you could hear somebody breathing in the phone. That was before uh, more advanced technology. Somebody was That's actually listening to your calls. And no kidding. When I'd come home from school, my mom, and she'd take a look at her and I said, oh, they've been in here again. And um, yeah, so we'd have to have conversations in the shower with the water, the cold water running, right? Like a spy movie. Yeah, it, it, I mean, there was a lot of that. And we were not the only people who were subjected to that. The idea of a communist dictatorship is that you oppress the people into thinking that they don't have a choice, that they can't fight back, right. that, the, that the worst happens if they fight back. And sure. from that standpoint, I think that the, the tool of that oppression was um, believing, making them believe that it was actually worse than, than it was. It was right. the saying that there, there's one um, secret service person for every 10 citizens. There's always going to be somebody who is going to tell on you if you say something bad about the... So a, a sense of paranoia. Right? It, it creates a sense of paranoia, yeah. And it took um, uh, 45, 46 years before, you know, uh, the sentiment of negativity built up to where people didn't care about what might happen. So to it them. loses its effectiveness. That's at that right. Point, yeah, right? it does. Because, you know, every, every one of these imperial regimes has to come down at some point. And so in 1989, there was a popular revolution started by a priest uh, in his church. And there was a lot of support for this guy. People marching in the streets. I remember um, midnight, suddenly there was light in the streets, which was not usually common. And it was dead silent. And, and then I hear these tanks rolling down my street. And there mm. was, it was a kind of a major arterial. And suddenly a bunch of army tanks were rolling down, kind of following these demonstrators just to sh create a show of force. Right. And that was the beginning of the revolution in, in Bucharest. It was the first uh, revolution televised live. And this was 1989. Locally, nationally, globally? Uh, well, I don't know because uh, we could only get our TV. But right. um, prior to this, we had two hours of television per day, one station, and it was all communist propaganda. Sure. At this point, the television was conquered by the revolutionaries and then just people rolling from the camera all the time. It was actually, wow. television station is always a, a place of power seizure. This Whoever gets there and takes control of that, of that camera gets the... Uh, the national limelight right, can actually right. become a leader, and that's that's in fact what happened. Um, but it was an eerie thing to hear gunshots outside, and then hear gunshots a second later on TV, because it was a just light. a slight yeah, 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 right. slight delay. Yeah. So, so you saw. So you were really as it unfolded, as yeah, it was there. as the tension just mounted to a point where it could no longer be that version of Romania. Yeah. Does do. It, because how old were you at this point? So I was uh, 19, I was 16. 16. Yeah. Do you even, does it even register at that point? Does it even register oh, sure. socially yeah, how big? Yeah, because you, you start to notice things. I mean, my family was really targeted. My mother never had, she was a teacher. She never had, um, uh, what's the word? She was always a, a substitute teacher yeah. because she had relatives in the country in the in the u.s and as a result she just was excluded from certain opportunities my right. father was fired from his job not long before this and just because uh, of his affiliations with yeah with the west that's yeah so which were i mean you have relatives they call every once in a while and we right. tried to get him not to call too often but because everyone of those calls could be monitored yeah and yeah. it could cause major problems with the family but um so i was pretty aware of things happening to us for sure and so <clears throat> It was a good time to see the regime turn around. And I don't know if you ever caught this, but uh, there was something else that was 
televised live that was very significant. First time that's ever happened. The president, Nikolai Ceausescu was his name, and his wife, Elena, they were, they were the bad people in this mm. whole thing. They were um, uh, the ones who had led the country for decades. Sure. And they fleed, actually. They went by helicopter somewhere, and then the helicopter ran out of gas, were, was forced to land, oh, and yeah. they were arrested. And then they were brought in front of a judge to be trialed by judge, and it was televised li- uh, live. So was it was it treason? Uh, it was or? treason, as genocide, and all sorts of things. Basically, the way it worked was for two hours. The judge shouted accusations at them. They did not have an attorney, and there was no jury. It was just this one guy who, whom you could not see, right? Shouting accusations at these two. They could not even speak. They were actually not very smart people, and um, and basically everybody was cheering, you know, on, behind their televisions. And then this judge sentenced them to death which was carried out immediately outside. Immediately? Televised firing live. Firing squad. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we actually watched that. They were they were against the brick wall, and uh, rumor it has it that the platoon commander actually started shooting before he even gave the order, so they all just unloaded on them, and you could see them. They were pinned against the wall. Their sure. bodies could not even fall down because so many bullets were coming at them. Is it a moment of joy, though? For Absolutely. It, it, was, it was the craziest thing. It was, right? it was Christmas Day, and the country celebrated the death of these two people. It's incredible. Yeah. You would never, I mean, I've, I consider myself very lucky and sometimes I don't know and I can't relate to what people have had to go through to struggle for things. Now, I was never rich, right? My parents were very, they were relatively poor. But to, to think like you can't even eat meat but a few times a month, yeah. that you can't even take a hot shower yeah. but in the morning. Do you feel like that equips you to be so resilient? towards anything absolutely. the world throws at you. Absolutely, yeah. It totally builds an immunity uh, towards um, negativity. And um, you start to, you start to not to sw- sweat the small stuff, really, yeah. as they say. It's, it puts things in perspective, and you say, well, I've had a lot worse, you know. Absolutely. Um, and uh, I, I, I didn't even tell you, my grandfather, who was injured in World War II, this goes back a long time, he was injured fighting the Russians because Germany occupied Romania before Romania turned weapons against Germany and joined the Allies. Oh, wow. And so he was injured, and he never received medical care for shrapnel he had in his entire body his whole life. So he had major, major problems from this and eventually died of paralysis, uh, three years paralyzed in bed. Never received medical care because he was he was, you know, caught fighting against the wrong guys, not because of his choice, but, but because right. of the way the, the country was. the cards were dealt. Wow. So... Uh, um, you know, persecution finds many forms, and it definitely cripples a nation until, until somebody rises and says, we've had enough. Yeah. And that's usually when it changes. Which is an interesting point, just to take a brief tangent. We're in a very interesting era in modern politics in the States, and you've been here for quite some time. Yeah. Do you sense, is it a superficial kind of dictatorship persona that we're seeing now, or is it something more serious that we should be alarmed about? Well, it's a good question, actually. I think that um, everything, every every negative um, factor in our lives, in our society, must be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. But I also believe in the strength of the American system, sure. which I think is the the most solid I've ever seen. You know, the most basic um, teachings are the ones that sust- uh, kind of last the, the test of time. Great and ours point, yeah. is based on the Declaration of Independence. And if you don't read that often, you should, because yes. it's the strongest piece of writing you've ever you've ever read. Constitution, of course, was based on that too, so it follows along the same rules. 
the system is written in such a way that no single person can take down this country. Right. There are so many tools to prevent that from happening in the political system. And um, as a result, you know, every four years, somebody wins the presidency and somebody loses the presidency and the people who were supporting the one who lost freak out. And I tell them, don't worry, don't worry, we'll be all right. Yeah. American system will triumph and it always will. It's not that different every time. We feel so, for some reason, we feel like it's so, we're bemoaning the system more than ever this time. You know what I mean? It's it's so strange to me. I haven't seen, and perhaps it's the bubble of social media, which really hyper More communications, yeah. Yeah, which which hadn't existed 10 years ago. No. Is it really that different, or is it just another day in the whole state of modern politics? Well, you know, I have a couple of different schools of thought here. My typical, uh, my typical approach to uh, problems of this sort is to put my head down and move forward. Yeah. I think that what the political system does to your life amounts to about 1% of your life. And the remaining 99% come from the things that you do, yeah. the things that you say, and how you engage with those around you, right? The community, how That's you right. impact that. Yeah, and I, because of that, I also believe in a system of leadership by example, by mm. role model. So you do the right thing, and eventually people around you will notice that, hey, it pays to do the right thing. Sure. Maybe I'll do the right thing too, and it spreads. Right? And eventually, spreads, yeah. Positivity spreads, right? And I believe that the human humankind is naturally good until proven wrong. And is that I think Hobbesian or Lockean? I can't, remember, <laughs> I can't remember which ones. If people are inherently good, That's, I can never remember. It, it's, it's well, a, one school of thought, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think most people believe that, actually. I hope so. Uh, <laughs> on the other hand, I think it is important not to um, allow things to happen and get too far because um, uh, we have been surprised once and you know, we could be surprised again. Sure. So there's kind of a balance now. There's probably a more, a, a more acute awareness of this balance now than ever before because uh, things are a little more advanced now than they have been in the past. Absolutely. And hyper-focused. It's so strange just how focused and almost obsessed we can get about something so singular, something so insignificant in the greater community. You know, and you But it's amplified by social media, That's right. as you mentioned. Yeah. Are you even, do you have a presence there? Is that something you like to engage in to... In social media? Yeah, to discuss, to clutter it. <laughs> That's a very good question. Actually, you know, um, I don't talk about politics on social media. I, may, I sometimes make a general statements about human life right. and positive influences and, and things like that. But I, I generally tend not to say anything unless I have some positive to say. And that is a professional choice. Sure. You know, um, people have gotten into trouble on social media for, for making statements that some didn't agree with when they were perceived to represent a brand or a company or a product. That's right. And there's no distinction between person and brand these days in social media. Right. So, uh, but that's okay. My, my general preference in, uh, in the rest of my life is not to say anything publicly unless it's positive. Right. I, I praise in public, criticize in private. And right. I think that's a pretty good rule. I think so too. I think that's a very, very honorable rule actually. Yeah. So this whole movement this whole kind of rift politically in Romania drives mm -hmm. your family. Uh, did they yeah. have enough? Did they have an opportunity? And they're just like, we've got to get the fuck out of here. Uh, the the sequence of events was that in 1989, the regime changed. Um, the guy who showed us uh, showed up as a, at the television station and looked the best, had the best entourage, and spoke the cleanest, became president two yeah. months later. Best brand. And, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, and I actually think that there was probably a little more than what we saw with the naked eye there, there was probably a seed that was planted by sure. some other national 
uh, entity, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps to to start this whole thing. And uh, but he turned out to be what was later coined um, neo communism. And so regime changes are hard, as we've come to find out here mm-hmm. as Americans lately, right? They're particularly hard when you switch gears 180 degrees. Mm-hmm. You know, when communism goes away, everybody says, yay, for free markets, for democracy, for everything that we've been wanting. But it's not that easy to achieve those things. There's a, a transitional period that could be very lengthy for people to transfer their energies and their understanding of a new thing. Right. And that happened in Romania. And after about two years, the worst had happened. There was inflation, there was recession, there was corruption. The black market was pretty much the only place to get things. In many ways, it was worse. Mm. And that was just kind of the price of, of transit. Yeah. Um, but my parents at that point in time made a decision that they actually called us very correctly. And they said the transition will take about 15 years. Wow. And they, they were right. And um, we do have relatives in the United States <laughs> and actually in Montreal. I didn't tell you about that. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So, so they said for our kids, my sister and me, let's go over there because they need a better life and we, we shouldn't waste 15 years of their lives. So um, we had a choice on, on whether to join our relatives in, Chicago, in uh, Los Angeles or in Montreal and we picked Los Angeles. How we came that? as visitors. Yeah, we okay. on visitor visas, which are very hard to get. We don't even know how it happened. Um, but we came here, and then the next day we applied for political asylum, which was promptly denied because Romania was not perceived to be a democratic country. Interesting. So okay. then after that, followed the 10, 14-year, 16-year um, discussion with the U.S. government on what it will take to be allowed to stay here. It took us to immigration court. We were in deportation proceedings for many years because the U.S. government did not think that there was persecution still left in Romania. Wow. And... Um, does that kind of linger over you? Does it loom over you? The fact no, that no, I found moment- I found a way to deal with it. You know, it took many years. It took me fourteen years to become an American citizen, and it would have been more like twenty if I hadn't married an American citizen. Oh, interesting. Um, and I don't know how it would have happened if my sister hadn't married an American citizen, because mm-hmm. that's kind of the event that started it all. But nonetheless, even after over a hundred thousand dollars in legal fees related, I, that's insane. quite a bit of humiliation yeah. at the immigration office when we had to go annually to renew our work permits. You know, we had to wait in line and pay for these things. Uh, and at the same time, we pay taxes and we were a good citizen and we support... It has nothing candidates. to do with that, right? No, it's just you just have to pay your dues to, to have to earn this privilege of yeah. staying here and working here. But I believe that's okay. I believe that's okay because it's sort of a... It's sort of a sorting system of deciding who's real about who's serious about staying here and who's extreme not. vetting, I guess. It's extreme <laughs> vetting. It's just the more more positive form of it. Right. You know, my family eventually started a company and we employed twenty five people and we created jobs in a lot of places and brought a lot of revenue into the state of Washington. And those kinds of things do matter uh, yeah. because we were proving ourselves to be good citizens. Absolutely. And so uh, I thought there was nothing wrong with that. It was frustrating. It was lengthy. But eventually, I came to appreciate it more than perhaps somebody who was born with that privilege is. Well, again, I, I feel, in a sense, almost shameful that I, don't, I didn't have to struggle to, do, <laughs> you know, to, to be there. You don't have to feel that. We just have to appreciate it. I do. And I think that the fact that people can't even reenter this country yeah. with green cards and stuff yeah, that's at this point rough. makes yeah. me really appreciative. Uh, but should it ever be that way? You know, I mean, it's again, it's let's just put it this way: it's a very strange time. 
It's so strange. It's, it's, strange. it's just, it's strange. You were talking about Twilight Zone last night. It's almost like a bizarro version of the States. <laughs> I thought we were all friends here. God damn, man. But the people can't even get back into the country. Well, if you look at the things that have happened over history, most of them have happened in the last 200 years, and most of them have really happened in the last five years. Yeah. So much of it has happened in the last two months. It just, there's an exponential growth to, to human interactions right now that's proliferated by the togetherness that we have globally and and the fact that pretty much anything is acceptable these days you can right. run your life the way you want it and and you can become famous and you can become a leader and some people will follow so um a lot i think people, it's a, an even yeah. more important time not to get too excited about the negative role models in our lives but to try to follow the positive role models and i don't think you can live a life without positive role models you get you spend too much energy on the negativity of of that's around you, you become part of it, and you're not really participating in anything constructive. That's right? right. You're letting it defeat you. That's right. And then eventually you accept that as the, the status quo, that well, shit's just fucked up. That's right. But so that's not how it should be. This is, this is how I envision this. This is a metaphor here. Ima- imagine a brawl among a bunch of people. There's right. like two people fighting over here, two people fighting over here, two people fighting over here. And, and it's in the office. Nobody's working, so... You could, you could, you have a couple of choices. You can go and try to break up all these fights and get involved and decide who's right and who's wrong and discipline the ones who are wrong and do all of this. Or you could sit down and start to do your work. That's right. Right? And eventually somebody's got to notice, what's this guy doing? Why is, oh. Get maybe, riled up, man. Maybe Come that, on. maybe, maybe I should do the same thing. Yeah. Right? Um, and eventually I think that spreads. We were talking earlier about positivity spreads. That's really my tool. I like it. Yeah. Put your head, as you said, put your head down and work. One, one, yeah, and one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Keep going. So the family business, from what I understand, is involved with welding. No, kind of. Sorry, soldering. soldering, Sorry, sorry. Yeah, which is a much smaller (laughs) scale, different heat temperature. Yeah, but it's in the same family. Yeah, for sure. And that was your father's trade in Romania as well. When he no, 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 it wasn't. No, this is another immigrant story here. Okay, no, please. Garage invention story. Yeah. So, um. When my dad was in high school in the 50s, he uh, got a job at the only TV manufacturer in Romania, and he okay. was repairing the version of printed circuit boards that they had back yeah, then yeah. on our black and white televisions. And he did a lot of soldering <clears throat> and burned himself a lot, so he thought, maybe I need to come up with some kind of thing that solders but does not burn Stop so hurting much. me, yeah. yeah. So he actually developed some concepts and then promptly abandoned them when he went to law school and became a lawyer. In what, uh, what area of law? Well, law in a country like that is very different. Fair very, enough, yeah. Um, he became a lawyer. He did not really practice as a lawyer. There's only criminal law there. There's no civil law. I see. He en- ended up actually in um, traffic education, really. <laughs> I yeah. don't even think. Very, very strange. School, uh, driving schools. Oh, nice. I like commercial it. driving schools for bus drivers. And yeah. Like that. He wrote a book. He, he did well with that. Um, and uh, uh, But eventually he was fired from it. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, when we came to the U.S., my parents, white-collar people, arrived in the U.S. without really a word of English known. My dad was 50. In fact, the day that we arrived in the U.S., my dad turned 50 years old, and my mom was 48, and they had to figure out how to live in America. And that was hard. So my sister and I kind of became the became the um, providers for a little while. Roles reversed, and the understanding was what they made a big sacrifice to allow us to come and live here. Sure. Now we have to... Turn Earn your keep and do the same way, for yeah. them. It's kind of the curse of the immigrant, though. 
you know, the first generation is kind of a lost generation. The second generation could become a lost generation too, a sacrifice generation if, if they're not careful. So um, my sister and I went to school and had jobs at the same time. And my parents were kind of jumping around from small job to small job. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was tough for them. My dad was working in the bakery and he was frustrated and he'd come home and tinker in the garage because he was kind of Back a to the garage. self-taught engineer and just yeah. liked to tinker. He created things out of frustration and stress. And after a few months of this, we saw him coming out of the garage every once in a while with some kind of thing that he had put together from <gasps> from like uh, marker pens, right, and right. S- and like lighter bodies, like flashlight bodies. Fashioned together some kind of monstrosity out of the garage. That's right, right? yes. Yeah. And then it was always some kind of cordless appliance. Some appliance he had made cordless, I should say, that was good in the household. Yeah. And he would say things like, wouldn't this be great at Radio Shack? And I'd say, yes, it would, except I have no idea how to get it there. I was <laughs> in my 20s. And so um, there was this one thing that was more interesting than the others, and it was a soldering tool that, that operated Cold on it. Well, yeah. Cold I mean, sorry, not to jump ahead in this story. Yeah, it's um, basically it's cordless, and that was a th- big thing yeah. um, in the late 90s. There was really no cordless soldering back then, except for butane powered which sure. is not which is more like what you're talking about welding or it's called right, right. and um uh and it heated and cooled instantly which was super cool it just his prototype i remember was really bulky required three hands to operate yeah. and and gave you about 20 joints before the batteries ran out but i eventually started to to show that to, to people and i was at a time working as a banker and going to school at night as well university of washington yep. is that right yeah, yeah. creative and, uh, writing now well, I started out as a chemistry, chemistry major, right? yeah, and um, and then I decided that I knew all the chemistry they were teaching me in in college because of high school in Romania, yeah. where I'd had seven years of chemistry, and the thing I needed to learn was English. So I added English as a second major, and eventually I loved it so much that I just graduated with a degree in creative writing. And even took it to a point where you were writing for local publications, I or did at least a little university. Bit, yeah, mm-hmm, I had a few publications. Did you have a real talk talk about writing for a moment? Did you? But about how long had you been in the states at this point? A few years. Uh, I was. I graduated in nineteen ninety nine, so that was um, eight years after eight I years. arrived. Yeah, Did it took me six years to get to college. By the way, work, well, working full time. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, we all gotta go through. The- <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to writing, though, which is one one kind of a vehicle to master the English language, which makes a lot of sense. But what kinds of things were you writing about? How did what what did you want to express yeah. at that moment? Yeah, right. Um, well, I started out actually taking literature classes, and my mother was a literature teacher, Romanian oh, okay. literature and language. So I had we had in Romania we had five thousand books at home, and I had read a bunch of them, and not all of them. And I was always inspired by by reading and writing at some level, short pieces. Yeah. But um, taking English literature classes and American literature classes. I found myself replicating the the writing of classic writers. You know, the classics are classic for a reason. They're very good. As far back as Shakespeare or a little Any, more enlightened? Really. I did write some Shakespearean verse. Yeah. I wrote you, you Chaucerian women, verse, yeah. which is crazy stuff. And a bunch of things like that. Yeah. You know, early English novel and so on. And uh, that was fun. That was so much fun, actually. Um, I wrote like Douglas Adams and I did a number of you know, poems, early modern poetry, and so on. A, ro- a romantic guy, hmm? would you say? A, a romantic guy? Uh, early uh, early uh, romantic poetry. Um, I'm sorry, early 
I don't know. Yeah, no, but, 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 but <laughs> I, ultimately. I, I tried to copy a lot of the classics. Basically, and it was fun to write. And then I started to develop my own pieces. Um, and uh, and then I got, I really started to enjoy creative writing to the point where I'd go to chemistry class and write poetry instead of listening to the formulas. Interesting. So that's pretty much when I said, I just, I'm just going to put chemistry um, on the on the back burner and finish this thing with the English degree and then yeah. start this company with my family with this crazy sodding tool because I did need to earn a living. Yeah, uh, creative the, earning doesn't, it's not too lucrative, as they say. Right, right. Uh, but it helped me get through a phase of my life where I thought that was the most important thing that I was lacking. Really? Right, English skills. So, uh, so yeah, so I graduated from the University of Washington in 99, and uh, the, right away, within a month, I started Cold Heat, the yeah. company based around my dad's sorting tool, which turned out to be very difficult to put together because to get it from that, three-handed prototype mm-hmm. made in the body of a flashlight into a commercial product was something that I was not prepared for. And um, what, Yeah, what do you even have a reference for that? Yeah, there was a reference. And I just, you know, I'm very fortunate to have come across these positive role models that have shaped my the direction in my life. And one of them was this man named Chris Bailey in Seattle. Uh, he was a founding director and investor at the bank where I was working. Oh, okay. And I left the bank and I took a job with him managing his personal investments and um, as a part-time job. I could do that. I knew how to do that. You felt comfortable with it? I did, yeah. And I could also spend some part of the week working on this uh, weird company idea that yeah. we all had. In the garage, right? And it was. this is the late 90s. So at the time, this is the internet era. Investments are flying around. People are giving people a million dollars just in the bathroom, you know, right. on, on a piece of paper. And um, so uh, the family was very active in making investments, and I was handling those for them. So I got to see a lot of startups, and I got to learn the, the world of startups. And I learned enough to write my own business plan and and figure out how to get this together within about a year. Yeah. And he actually became the first investor because he was very impressed with my ability to have done this kind of on the side. And so um, we started this company, and... At the absolute worst time, the market crashed in March of 2000, and people were saying, you're starting a what company? What is soldering? soldering. <laughs> what is that? It was written up by a, yeah. by a press release as smoldering, which oh, was a Jesus. funny thing. Yeah. Uh, so it took, it took about, um, let's see, we launched it on the market in January of 2004. On QVC, That's which, by the way, is an amazing company. Oh, imagine! It's a yeah. very scientific, well-run company, and um, linked to Shark Tank. I mean, I've watched Shark Tank somewhat, all the time. Yeah, and yeah. it's—I mean, it's one of those things where you think about entrepreneurialism, and QVC is linked. It's inextricable. Yeah. With creating new products. Yeah. Well, I'd gotten to um, spend a bunch of time, literally, looking for suppliers around the world, trying to figure out how to make this thing and find the right materials putting it in the patent, and um, it was a, an immense opportunity. I had no idea how to do any of it, and I still don't have an idea of my job. If <laughs> I wake up in the morning and I look at my to-do list and I say, I know how to do this, then right. I'll just think something's wrong, right? I'll smash my head against the wall until <laughs> brain drops back into place, and I, I'm starting something new every day. And at the time, it was really different. Um, but I remember calling Radio Shack after... And after some running around with different people on the phone, I got the soldering buyer. And uh, he said, and this is the height of Radio Shack. They had like 7,000 sure, stores. Right. And, and and I blurted out, I have the soldering tool that is works on four AA batteries and heats and cools instantly. And the guy said, 
that's not possible. I said, no, no, it's possible. I have it right here in my hand. He said, well, can you send it to me? I said, no, I can't send it to you. <laughs> but I can come with it and sure. show it to you. And he said, great, can you come in two weeks? So we made a date. And then- Where, where was he? Station? Fort Worth. Fort Worth. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's the headquarters for Radio Shack. And, um, and then as I, was, as I was hanging up, he said, hey, do you have a manufacturer for your tool? And I said, no, <laughs> I don't have a manufacturer. It's a little too early to think about that. Yeah. So he said, okay, well, call this guy. And they had a division that was manufacturing for them in Nashville, North Carolina. So I ended up calling that guy. And he said, well, if, if Alan will buy it, I'll make it for you. So it started a whole thing. We actually went well beyond that. We yeah. found better partners um, and uh, started to produce this thing, launch it on QVC in 2004. And uh, I was there at QVC in the green room, which is a yeah. fascinating place to be. And nothing happened for a whole minute. And after... If you don't do a good first two minutes, then you're off the air and you will never come back. Right. But I had taught the the guy showing the tool on on the live uh, stage this little trick of putting his finger on the tool before soldering to show it's cold. Soldering, melting thing is like several hundred degrees, right? Yeah. And you can see the smoke and the red light comes on and then you take it off and it cools in a second or two. So I said, put your finger back on, show how fast it cooled. And the moment he started doing that the demonstrating it ringing off the hook and he was a blockbuster success that's incredible that yeah tools sold every six seconds it was really cool so that started a whole campaign we had um, we had in twenty thousand retail locations in nine months and we had an infomercial which was driving the the retail right. uh, uh awareness and within nine months we were the best known soldering brand in the country that's incredible. 66% brand awareness. Yeah. It all starts in a garage, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, uh, all the presentations still showed my dad with his flat shirt, the button <laughs> up to the top, because that's what he does in his garage with all his tools around him looking at the camera. That's yeah, so yeah, incredible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but, but that's, that's the true American story. Think about it. Absolutely. You tinker, you have this aha, yeah. eureka moment. Yep. And then it takes someone like you to not be afraid. To not be afraid. That's right. To not be afraid to do it. Yeah, and people want to help people like that. I, I mean, I so now too. I'm the generation who's trying to help the younger generation, and I recognize when somebody comes up and has that energy and passion for yeah. whatever it is they're doing. Absolutely. That you know they're going to be successful because they're not going to fail. Yeah. Right, and they're they're just going. Well, to, they won't accept it. Right. They that's have right. To keep yeah. Moving forward. So those people, I just get close to those people. I want to help them, give them advice or whatever it is they need. It enriches uh, our lives, I think, being mm -hmm. around people like that. Yeah. The entrepreneurs, that spirit, that just you're not going to let anything stand in your way. Yeah. And it's almost narcissism and sociopathic behavior. It's it's close, right? That yeah. sense of uh, identity. But there's the passion, though, again. That's kind of what If you think that you. you're doing the right thing, I don't think it's narcissistic. No. Um, you probably, I mean, I had, a, I had a very serious reason. Soldering was not on my list right. of to-do things in my life. But it was important for my parents. You see, it was something that per perhaps provided an opportunity for my sister and me yeah. to create something of value that we could turn around and give back to my parents that they had created to start with, right? Yeah. And recognize the sacrifice they'd made by moving moving countries at the age of 50. With Literally, we arrived in the U.S. with one handbag each person. That's all we had. Wow. So... Um, I thought this was worthwhile. And then along the way, I'm like, I'm learning a lot. I'm learning more in one day than most people will learn at their jobs in two years. You can't pay for a degree like that. Right. No, yeah. it's called a street MBA. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, 
it was a good experience. I learned a lot during that, and everything I learned there really shapes the way that Noel Fogel came about. Well, so yeah, so let's talk about this chapter. I want to try the second mark here. Yeah, as we kind of talk about you how you're introduced to Brazil. We've got two others, but I I suspect that'll be three others. Oh, three others. Yeah, this one's hiding here. Oh, it's a hidden one. Well, yeah. brilliant. Let's try the second one. So, what is this guy? Uh, this is a uh, um, we call this chameleon, and I'll explain in a second why. This is aged in oak for one year, and um, most people in the U.S. do not know that most cachaças are aged in barrels. Yeah. And most of them are oak. Uh, in fact, I would say about ninety percent of the cachaça labels in Brazil are aged. And if you go to the south, our part of the the country, mm-hmm. it's more like ninety eight percent of the labels are no aged kidding. and most of them probably 60 70 percent of the total are aged in oak oh you get that on the nose oak man be- yeah yeah you get the oak you get the vanilla and toffee yes. yeah and the reason why oak is um, multifold really well we know oak is tasty it's porous it ages well mm. and it's available and it's affordable and it's a sustainable choice at least for now Brazilian woods are not sustainable in fact most of them are in danger so mm. we are very careful with how we use those things we have very little of those uh, I'll tell you more when we get to one of those. But oak in the last 20-some years has become kind of the new tradition for cachaça. And Tois, the man who started the distillery, was really probably just the second distillery to start using oak. Mm. To the point where in, in this time period of 15, 20 years, it's become such a success, both from the producing side with 60 or 70% of the labels using oak, and also from the consumer side where Brazilians really love oaky things the oakier the better it wins competitions in fact the next one that you'll try uh actually was named the best cachaça in brazil no kidding so so well so, so yeah. here's a, it's a, to start to cut you off yeah you're a romanian guy working in oh, electro- yeah. electronics <laughs> in the states uh-huh. how With a bunch of material scientists that's, that's right how do you become at the forefront of a brazilian heritage cultural product yeah how, well, I mean, how does that even intersect? Where you have, do you get the inspiration? You plan your life a little bit, and then you also respond to opportunities. When uh, I went to college and I was writing poetry, I was very creative. I was very inspired. I could write 10 poems in one night, perhaps, on some nights. Drinking or not drinking? Not drinking. No, oh, I don't geez. think so. I didn't that's drink that's that really before. brilliant, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and then I became the president of an engineering company with a bunch of people who were way smarter than me. Yeah. And my notepads at work became had the math check checkers right and i wrote formulas with amps and volts in them and during that time i did not write any poetry or anything creative i thought about it a lot Mm -hmm. it was i was running in my head but you can't really get your brain to do both things at the same time i think i think you have to condition your brain to do what you need to do then but also to kind of get it set up for the next step so um in in my life i believe that ultimately i'll end up making movies Really? Because as I a director, as a writer? As of everything, perhaps. I think that's the most potent, most effective way to teach people certain values. May I ask you a few of the influential films for you? Something that drives you? I'm, I'm a huge film nerd. <laughs> all film good, nerd? bad, and indifferent, yet yeah, all types of films. I like all sorts of things. I have many, many favorites. Um, the Red Violin was one. Oh, yeah, yeah. Lincoln was one. Kind of kept me on the edge of my seat for three hours. And um, I'll think about more by sure. the end. But I don't. Yeah, I tend not to have favorites. Actually, that's something I love. But you from just my wife. love cinema on the whole. I like. No, I don't like no, cinema okay. as a whole. I like the opportunity to tell stories to people. Interesting. As long as those stories are 
um, important stories to right. tell. And history actually teaches us the best stories, so I want to make historical movies. Interesting. Yeah, I actually don't like most movies today. I, I have a hard time going to the theater. Really? Yeah. But if, if something like Patton, how do you feel about something like that? Yeah, sure. So historical things sure. and classic movies, I think, are much better sources of of uh, education than yeah. than the current cinema. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but that's an interesting distinction to make. I like both. I like stuff that's gritty that does tell a tale that actually happened. But at the same time, I kind of want to be lighthearted and fall in love all over again with the music. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it happens. It's a, it's a delicate balance. That's right. Yeah. And there are different emotions we have to foster in ourselves in order to be complete individuals. So it's good to get a little bit of everything. Absolutely. Um, but I, you know, if I want to get there at some point in my life, I have to condition my brain towards that. And that requires a huge amount of creativity. Yes. Well, I couldn't have done that as uh, working for an engineering company. Right. right. So where, where I am right now is kind of the middle point between the science and the creativity. Nova Fogo is an amazing opportunity for me to um, work on a product that that we define mm -hmm. that we manufacture and uh, also understand consumer psychology and how to resolve the problems within that consumer base and then create the product that answers those problems and then tell a story that's going to make it loved right there's a lot of creativity that comes into that, but it's not just. I still have to work on a lot of spreadsheets. Right. Right? It takes both There's sides operations of the brain. and the marketing side of it, which is soft right. and hard numbers. But I still write most of the copy for our stuff. And Do you I, really? For a long time, I, it was it was my favorite part. It really is. I wanted to create a, a voice for the brand that would be uh, consistent and make sure that the people who came into the company afterwards understood that and followed it. Of course, putting their own personal print on them on, right. on it, but still maintaining maintaining the tonality of the brand voice and that's happening so i'm not writing all the copy anymore but i'm still writing a lot of it yeah yeah i, I imagine that you still have a finger on some of it i like yeah I like, never I like fully give it up yeah right. that's right and so um i i think that it's important to try to set yourself up for the next step of your life figure out how how are you going to condition that brain to do what's necessary for today but also to get it ready for tomorrow mm always have that five-year plan in place and then sure. a 10-year plan in place and make sure that you're making progress as you move forward. Do you get... I imagine your greatest foe is stagnation. Stagnation. Actually, it's superficiality. Oh, stagnation fair. is good. Yeah. I like it, uh, for sure. I can't possibly sit still. I have not had more than a day off in the last five years. <laughs> right. Right. There's always something to do, so you're right. But the thing that gets under my skin the most is superficiality. Is when what? people when people uh, judge things based based on very little information without really understanding what may be behind the behind the scenes. Do you experience that a bit on the road? Yeah, I think the whole political scene is very superficial. Sure. I think people people get irate about things they don't understand all the time. They don't even want to understand. I feel <laughs> sometimes. No, because it becomes ideological, and it's kind of if you, your guy is doing everything right, and the other guy's guy is doing everything wrong, and there's no room for objectivism and analysis, and that yeah. drives me crazy. It's amazing. So when did this idea, I mean, I can't even imagine. I get the entrepreneurial spirit, and I get that you want to be creative. I get that spirits are a way to compose. Uh -huh. Compose flavor, yeah. compose aesthetic, and compose a story. Story, yeah. Right, all of those things. So when did Nova Fogo fully kind of take form? What year are we talking yeah, so at one point, it was around 2009 or 2008 or 2009, I decided that I had my own dreams. And it was based on things that had happened in the past. So to start, when I was eight years old, 
kid in Romania, I read this book called The Black Pearl. Pele, it was about right? Pele. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And um, it was a tiny little book, and it was amazing. I loved that book. So I, bec- I just fell in love with the Brazilian soccer history, and mm. I read everything I could possibly read about World what, Cup what, it, what drew you to that? Because soccer oh, is soccer great. is a huge sport in Romania, so I was oh, definitely okay, a big fan. Yeah, yeah, a huge sport. It was the most important sport, although supposedly the national sport is something that is kind of like baseball that nobody plays. Really? Like yeah. cricket or something? No, it's like baseball, actually. <laughs> but <laughs> nobody knows what it is and how the rules go. And uh, <clears throat> so I actually learned enough about World Cup history. I, just, I thought at some point I'll write about World Cup history mm. myself in the future. I might still do that. I might be, uh, actually have... Some movie ideas about soccer stories. Never over. No, no. There's so much you can learn from the past, right? That's right. And so I thought this Brazil country, you know, sounds like it's at the end of the universe. It's on. It may not even exist because mm. it's so far away. But I want to go there someday. As a kid, I said that to myself. And then, in um, when when we started Cold Heat, it was a good success and it grew very fast. And our key supplier actually needed to expand capacity and. They thought they had a, a good solution in a factory they owned in Porto Alegre, the state of Rio Grande do Sul in the south, south part of Brazil, mm. very close to Argentina and Uruguay. And we started working with those folks. And I went there one day in 2005. I went there literally for two days. It took me a day to get there and a day to get back. And yeah. I was there for two days or less. And during those two days, I fell in love with Brazil and Brazilians and cachaça and Brazilian steak. What is it about? <laughs> the steak. Yeah. yeah. What is it about Brazilians? Yeah, um, what did you what did you get that obviously not I don't want to equate it, but Hispanic culture just has this vibrant and this kind of sense of community that perhaps living in suburbia in LA or in yeah. Austin does not have. So what unique quality There's genuineness, I think, mm. um that is hard to find here. People in Brazil and I mean all people in Brazil, obviously more of those who don't live in the big cities cuz big cities will develop some of the same qualities as here. Sure. Uh, but I was in a big city, and I met people who were incredibly unassuming, very models, modest, humble, and um, very respectful and loyal to the opportunity they had to work mm. at a time when Brazil was during uh, pretty heavy recession times. And I thought, well, that's fine because we're employing all these people. We're giving them parts to make, and they're getting paid. Right. But then I started to find people who did not had no idea who I was. They did not even know that I was a foreigner, and they were still kind to me on the first on the first blush. Amazing, and that is so meaningful to me because it tells a lot about the the human essence that appeals to me. You know, that whole bit about humankind is right. good deep down inside. It was clearly alive and present in Brazil. So I thought these people are beautiful inside inside and out, and now too, by the way, especially in the south, Porto Alegre is. And Curitiba, are the home of supermodels. That's right. I've, and I've heard about this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was hard. It was hard to walk down the street, and there were a lot of good-looking people. And um, so it was not hard, actually. It was. Good. <laughs> <laughs> you found more and more ways to go walk down the street. I'm sure. But I didn't have a lot of time. I actually yeah. literally had 45 minutes of free time during that during, oh, no. during that short trip. But I came back with a bottle of cachaça and a Ronaldinho jersey that they the host had given me. And I said, I like this stuff, Cachaça. I had actually walked, gone to Brazil saying, I got to try a Caipirinha because yeah. I'd had it in Manhattan the year before. And I did not realize how big a deal the Caipirinha was to Brazil. So as I arrived in Porto Alegre and the, the host took me to a Fogo de Chao restaurant, which is actually the original Fogo de Chao, no longer exists in Porto Alegre, 
As I walked into the restaurant, I gave him my coat at the door, and they handed me a caipirinha, and they were ready. And by the time I sat down on the table, that caipirinha was gone. Yeah. I thought, this is amazing stuff. So I had a lot of caipirinhas during those two days. So as I came home with this bottle of industrial cachaça, <laughs> I literally went through it in the next party. And uh, people were saying things like, how come I've never had this drink? This drink is amazing. Right. And then I saw people double fisting them too. <laughs> so I started to look for cachaça in the U.S. And this is 2005. It was, it was impossibly hard to find cachaça. Sure. There yeah. was nothing that was rec- nationally distributed. Our pioneer category pioneers were struggling to figure out how to get distributors and tell consumers different industry what this completely thing was. at that point. Yeah, the you know the category is 500 years old in Brazil and literally only about 15 years yeah. here in the U.S. Astonishing. So um, I just years passed, and I was just always kept an eye on whether or not there was cachaça at the bars that I was going to. And one one night. My wife, Emily, and I were at the Trader Vic's, and I thought that place would have good cachaça and didn't. It had just one industrial brand. And so I thought, well, somebody's got to bring better cachaça into this country, and maybe that could be us, so especially since I really love Brazil and I want to spend more you time there. You want an there. excuse to go back. I kind of <laughs> did. It, it was, it was, the question was, can we make this personal interest into a business? Mm. It's kind of the wrong way to go about things. But the moment, the more we did the research, the more we realized that there was a lot of opportunity. The, cash- the category was in its infancy. It was small. There, was, uh, there were a lot of gaps in the product <clears throat> offering. There was nothing organic at the time. And I know something or other about small categories. We increased the sodding category five times ourselves. Incredible. We, were, we were that 400% growth, really. So I thought, well, we can do the same thing that I did with soldering in this in this world. And um, we got more and more interested. And then basically what we did was we said, let's see if we can find the distillery we can partner with. Because the idea was you buy a distillery, you build a distillery, or you just partner with the distillery. Right. And the third one was the easiest option, especially as now we're in the middle of a global recession. Sure. And I'm this crazy guy whose dreams have just awakened in the middle of a global recession, going to another country. Two drinks in. Let's, yeah, <laughs> let's do something new. <laughs> <laughs> and if people did not know what soldering was, well, I'll find something even harder. It's cachaça, right? Yeah. So, but that I I suppose there's a addiction to that. But I I think it's an addiction to making something cool, discoverable by people who otherwise wouldn't have access to it. Right. That's what I call innovation. You take something out of a context where it's common mm. and ordinary, and you put it in a new context where it's uncommon and extraordinary. That's, That's right. innovation, right? I like that. I yeah, want to I do, do those too. things. It's, I'm not inventing anything. I'm just putting it in a better context you're, and giving fra- a better story. You're like a director, framing mm-hmm. it a little bit, in yeah. a different way. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Different scene. Yeah. I do love positioning things. So um, we started this process of looking for a distillery. And at the beginning, it was just online, literally looking to see who's there. And, yeah. And I had developed this questionnaire with a bunch of questions to sent to these distillers to find out if they're a good match. And we had three requirements besides good taste. The requirements were that we wanted something organic because we knew that uh, at the time, so this is 2008, 2009, um, 80-some percent of Americans would pay up to 15% more for an organic product than its inorganic counterpart. And I thought, well, cachaça, Brazil, sugarcane, lots of it. Maybe we can find inexpensive organic sugarcane to make cachaça. The second requirement was uh, that of sustainability because 
and this is actually very important, Emily and I have both been very big proponents of rainforest preservation. Mm. We believe that Brazil holds the key to the future of the planet. You know, there's the saying that Brazil is the lungs of the planet, and it's really right. true. There's the Amazon forest, and there's the Atlantic rainforest where we're based. And uh, <clears throat> between these two, Brazil has close to 50% of the world's species of plants and animals, and a lot of trees. Absolutely. And these trees, as you may know, uh, translate carbon dioxide into oxygen. They actually store the carbon dioxide. So they filter you, it. Yeah, they yeah, do. They take it out. But what you may or may not know is that when you cut down a tree, that creates pollution because it releases that stored carbon dioxide. I actually didn't know that. No. Yeah. At one point, deforestation was the number one cause for pollution in the world. And CO2 it account, increases. Yeah, it accounted for more than uh, the pollution created by all the world's vehicles combined. So, so to reframe this, so once a plant dies, so yes. as long as it's alive and breathing, it will consume and it will hold the CO2, the right. carbon, ultimately. Right. But once it dies, it releases all of that into yeah, the it stops. It stops putting out oxygen because it's no longer there. Right. And two, it releases that carbon dioxide. I had no idea. I didn't realize that. Do you think, is that common knowledge for people? No, it's not. Every time I not. mention it, people don't know it. No. Now, because there's been better management of forest resources, that's no longer the number one source of pollution. That's I think it's something like eighteen percent of total pollution, wow. but it's still a lot. That's a lot, right? So, yeah. the um, the Brazilian story with forests has been that it's kind of been a mess over the last few decades. The world basically went to Brazil and said, "You you are the steward of a global asset yeah. called the rainforest, the Amazon in in particular, and you have to take care of it for us, and we don't trust you. So here's how you're going to do it." Well, that never works. You can't go to a neighbor's yard and yeah, rearrange the yard. Yeah, you can't do it, right? Right. And, um, and so there was a lot of there were a lot of problems with deforestation, especially in the Amazon, where there is a lot of lawlessness. It's hard to enforce mm. um, preservation because there are no trees. The canopy of the jungle is so thick, you can't see it from above. You know, all sorts of things happen below that canopy. But perhaps it was even worse in the Atlantic rainforest. You see, the Amazon lost 17% of its original mass. It's at 40, 80, I'm sorry, it's at 83%. Wow. But the Atlantic rainforest, that sliver of green on the coast, and there's only 7% of it left. 93 is gone. When did the deforestation really start? When the cities be, uh, were founded. Oh, the big wow. cities on the coast, uh, Sao Paulo has 20 million people, Rio de Janeiro has five, Santos has five million people, Curitiba has four million people, and so on, up and down the coast. Yeah. And so people come and move there. They have to come cut down trees to build houses, and they have to cut down trees to build houses right, twice, right? right? So yeah. um, the tree in our logo, by the way, is an endangered tree. It's the symbol of the state of Paraná. It's a pine tree, and it became endangered shortly after the, the World War II when there was an influx of people moving there after the war. Wow. So we thought that the way to go about this whole problem was, once again, not to go and tell them what to do, but to find the role models. Mm and come and tell their story and help them become financially, economically successful so that their neighbors see what's happening and say, oh, I can do well by doing the right thing. Yeah. Right? It's lucrative. It's the same thing we've yeah. been talking about the whole time here. And so um, we were looking for that role model citizen. And we found we found the, the right people. We found our kindred spirits in the town of Mojetes in the middle of the Atlantic rainforest, wow. state of Paraná, in coastal mountains, blanketed by rainforest overlooking the Atlantic coast. This was a zero-waste distillery that was USD organic certified, and every single business practice was right. 
and the mm. people were great. How long did it take you to adapt to the language and the culture? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think that it took me a lot shorter than other people would require, but it was still hard. You know, if you look at Portuguese, if I gave you a text in Portuguese, mm. you could read it, sure. especially if you speak Spanish, you totally understand it. But then if I read that text in Portuguese to you, you'd be like, what? <laughs> right? Sure. You see the word restaurante written mm -hmm. down? You understand that? Sure. But if I say restaurante, you kind of don't know what that means. That's right. Because right. yeah. the pronunciation rules are very difficult. So that was hard for me. In fact, I found myself speaking faster than I could understand as much. Um, and, uh, and, you know, 2009, 2010, before the Olympics and the World Cup there, there was very little English. Mm. in Brazil and the ATM cards wouldn't work and your cell phone wouldn't work and you know the GPS that was supposed to be in the car wasn't in the car and there was not a single GPS in the airport to be found and it was hard to navigate yeah. it was really yeah. hard to navigate at, at, at one point the first trip the trip where we went and saw seven distillers around the whole country over the course of two years two uh, two weeks sorry that was hard the mm. first few days were rough like we couldn't we couldn't pay for things Sure. We had right. no cash no at means one to point, do it, yeah. and no way to get it out of twenty cash machines that I had tried, and the credit <laughs> card wouldn't work at the restaurant. You, right? Like, yeah. Uh, and this is one of the the most developed banking systems in the world, but it just wasn't matching. Now it's very different. It's easier. Sure. You know, there's English on the ATM menus, and taxi drivers speak English, and so on. So, uh, the the two uh, sports festivals have really helped with that. Yeah. So we wanted to find a spirit. So we wanted that story of sustainability. And the third thing was that we wanted to be able to tell the story of the simple life. Mm. And that was stemmed from our understanding of what was going on with the human spirit in the middle of a global recession. When, what, what does simple life mean to you? Yeah, so if you remember a few years ago, uh, suddenly nobody had money or the people who did closed their pockets because they didn't know what was coming. Right. So nobody went to the mall anymore. Retail therapy no longer existed. Yeah. People didn't go out anymore. There was a high rate of unemployment, etc. So we replaced those things, those tools for satisfaction with more personal communications and interactions. Mm. Suddenly, instead of going out, you'd have people come over. It turns out that you don't have to party on a Saturday really hard. You can just have people come over for a simple dinner on a Tuesday yeah. and still kind of enjoy the company of your friends that way or your family. There was a lot more that happened in terms of human interaction. And I thought, well, you know, Brazil probably can tell us a lot of stories about this because especially those people in the country, they have a very simple life. And in our town of Mojetes, the, the people of this town actually coined the term a vida mais simples, which means the simpler life. Mm. Not the simple life, the simpler life, simpler, even yeah. more simple than simple. <laughs> right? So in Mojetes, what that means is that you care about the following things, family, friends, food, drink, yeah. nature, uh, um, food, uh, drink. I'm sorry. Um, song and dance. Yeah. And football, soccer. Right. Seven things. It's pretty good. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. And everything else is just dirt. Doesn't matter. You do those things with your friends. You do those things with the same people you work with and you live with and you see. And there is a very um, smooth transition to the day. And when you have fewer objectives, you accomplish a higher percentage of them. You have a higher level of personal satisfaction from day to day. You wake up energized in the morning saying, today's going to be a good day too. Yeah. Right? That was a story worth telling, telling Americans. Absolutely. <laughs> how, so how does, if you think about, and we'll try this third 
installment. I like the installment yeah. of this saga of yeah. the Kachasa. Okay. How does this, you think, translate those values to someone who sips it? How do you feel like it represents the simpler life? Yeah, so uh, I think I think that um, a product is more than the liquid in the bottle. I think, um, you know, you put something in a person's hand and then you leave and whatever you put in their hand is your salesperson. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the way that we build our brand and our product line is very consistent. We have a brand image. We actually have a brand book in which we say these are the these are the kinds of colors we like to use because they express these sorts of emotions. Right. These are the kind of graphics we use in backgrounds. Style guide. That's right. It's yeah. totally a style guide. You know, we round the corners because we think that square corners are pokey. They mm. trouble the mind um, <laughs> subliminally, right? Right, right. And also there's a function to that. They don't they don't get bent very often. So we um, we do these kinds of things and then we apply those things, those guidelines to everything yeah. about the product, to the bottle, to the booklet that I gave you here, to our menus, to our classes, to all of our interactions, so that when I hand you a drink, it's not just a drink itself, it's a story with the drink. In fact, we say we're a we're um, a storyteller, a marketing company that happens to own a distillery, right? We like to tell stories. That's why the first employee that Emily and I hired was a full-time videographer. Really? Yeah. Crazy, right? David Fincher was out of work, I guess. Right? It was great. Yeah, I mean, we make a lot of videos. That's video is the greatest tool for telling stories. Like you can the see visual that. Visual Yeah. And um, we bring Brazil over here with these beautiful video stories. Mm-hmm. And then we use all those for training, education, the class. Yes, they, we had a live tour of the distillery. Right. But, you know, we take it on celebrity cruise ships for cocktail and spirits classes. We give people an in, inside look at the mountain and the jungle and it puts people in a good mood you know i believe that every interaction we have with a consumer or anybody really uh, is an experience sure. and an experience must follow four steps mm. every single time and they kind of come in order the first one is relaxation people come to you from all walks of life and somebody's mother's sick and somebody got fired and somebody suspects that he's being cheated on right. and other people just got a huge bonus or a new job and you kind of have to bring him to a common deni- denominator so you got to relax those people bring him mm. to that common place the second step is entertainment you can accomplish a lot with humor actually it relaxes people makes makes them trust you more sure right it, crack a joke people like you that's why i make stupid jokes all the time. well you should you know humor is the most viral of all things yeah. You drop what you're doing when you get a good joke and you share it with your friends, right? Absolutely. The third thing, now that they're relaxed and trusting, is to educate them. Mm-hmm. This is an important step because now you, you wouldn't have been able to just start telling them things when they arrive. But now they're ready for, for the education. So you can start talking about where this thing comes from, how it's made, something that they didn't know before. Yeah. And it's pretty easy to tell people uh, about Kashasa when they didn't know about it because a lot of people don't know about it. Sure. And then the final step is always that of inspiration. You have to leave them with something that's going to continue, to make them continue to Resonate, think about this. Right? Yep. Keep keep tapping them in the mind, in the, the inspiration areas. I suppose. Yeah. So try to find something that they can apply to their own lives yeah. that's going to be relevant to them long term. And um, those four steps create an experience, as well as the drink itself should engage all five senses because the more senses you engage, the more memorable the experience, right? Right. But when I say experience, I mean 
handing a drink over to somebody during an event mm. or giving a one-hour class on a cruise ship. You know, all of those are experiences, small and big. And so we try to apply those rules to everything that we do, both graphic and emotional. A constant and consistent aesthetic. Always. A style Voice, guide. aesthetic, and an style. And a thoughtfulness towards people and the psychology of it as well. Absolutely. You know, when, um, when we started the business, we wanted to create our own brand, and we named it Noel Fogel, and we had some pretty specific ideas about how this brand would look. And we said it will be based on the people and the place where it comes from, provided that those people in that place are respectful of, of life, right? Right, right. And, um, but it was a kind of an idea to go to a bunch of distillers and say, yeah, we don't like your brand. We're going to create ours. We just like your juice, right? How'd they, how'd they respond to that overall? Well, um, I think there was one who did not like it, but the others were fine with it. Uh, our eventual partners were thrilled with it because they saw the story that we wanted to tell. And they said, this is very strong. This is representing of us. In fact, I remember somebody said, your pitch is our business plan. Mm. This should be easy. It's right? amazing, yeah. So anything you want to do in that direction is fine. It represents us just fine. And we intentionally built the brand on these folks because um, they were they had a real story. You know, the easiest way not to get lost is to be yourself. That's absolutely right. Well, so let's try, we'll talk about, or, or I'll be able to talk about some of these other extended SKUs, but we've got a right. third bottle. It's so profoundly darker. <laughs> yeah, it is. This the first one was I'm sorry the chameleon was only one year in oak and this is two years in oak, so only a little bit more. But in the jungle, it's hot and humid, and aging happens really fast. So the difference between the one year and two year is profound, like you say. It's much oakier. The nose more vanilla and toffee. Absolutely different. Yeah. Well, yeah. so let's use this as to kind of a gateway to talk about the, this most recent chapter. I see you as a very very shrewd businessman who's. <laughs> Thanks. Been able to execute things in a creative way, like you're riding the lines or riding the lands of being creative and operationally proficient, right? right. That's not Absolutely, an easy yeah. balance to no. make. So, how long now? So, we're talking. You guys are Nova Fogo is about five years. Yeah, we launched in 2010 actually, so we're a little over six years. Six years. Yeah. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. I'm actually not in the right year. I still <laughs> don't date my checks appropriately. What would you say for someone who probably had a good insight going into it, understood the story that you wanted to tell, what is one of the main lessons that you've learned that you never thought things were going to turn out in that way? I never, yeah, okay, I have one. Um, when we launched, we said, we're going to do this ourselves. We're going to do this without investors for as long as we can because we want to control mm. our destiny, live or die by our own sword. Right. And um, and so that meant that it could take longer to grow. And it certainly did. It was two people with a little help from family. And in the first, after six, six months after we launched, actually, my wife was diagnosed with two breast cancers simultaneous. Mm. And so that was two years of our life, really. It, I mean, it, it, is, it takes forever. And you always live with that. But it was two hard years, during which time we were more of a 1.25-person company with her being less than optimal. And uh, all I tried was not to lose any balls, not to drop any balls. And we managed to do that. We juggled everything, and we just kind of kept it going. And and then we started to grow it. And um, we, we hired some people, raised some money eventually. But only after we proved the model, figured out the 
figured out the the story that was right, the product line that was right, the operational uh, structure that was necessary. Also figured out super importantly what kind of distributors uh, were going to be optimal right. for us and where we're going to do it and how we're going to do it. All those things, I wanted to execute the original vision and see if it works before we start sharing with other people. Mm. And to somewhat of my dismay, everything from the original vision in 2009, 2010 has happened. Wait, why is that to your dismay? Because, you know, life takes unexpected turns. And right. And this was not, an, it was I calculated, thought, I thought right? it would change. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I thought that something would happen. Somebody would come and persuade me to change my mind about something. But your, it, it, your wife ended up being okay? Yeah, she's in okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah, six years now. And and she's a partner in the business. She works with us full time Perhaps well. that was the unforeseen turn. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Right? I mean, because... But it didn't deter us. It actually strengthened some sure. of our beliefs. But and it still is one of those things you didn't ever think would anchor what your yeah. original vision. Yeah, was. that's fair. You that's know? fair. Yeah, it actually was the beginning of the wellness programs. Really? Portland Cocktail Week 2011, which I think was maybe the second Portland Cocktail Week, maybe third, but I think second. And um, uh, my wife had just had a bunch of chemotherapy and a bunch of surgeries, and I uh, talked to the folks at Portland Cocktail Week. And I said, I mm-hmm. want to do a I want to do a, a run, a 5K run through the streets of Portland to raise money for cancer awareness and research. And they jumped on that, and they said, we would love to help you with this. So I literally, on my own, I got the permit from the city of Portland mm. and worked out the whole thing. We had a few volunteers from the festival who helped out. And the concept was, uh, it was called uh, Bartender's Run to Kick Cancer's Ass. And we had these little bra- bracelets with this engraved. Right. And I said, it costs 25 bucks to run this race. And 100% of your proceed, the proceeds will go to Fred Hutchison Cancer Research Center in yeah. Seattle. But if you're a bartender and you start and you finish on your own two feet, mm-hmm. we will, the company will pay the 25 bucks for you. It's amazing. And uh, it was awesome. 50 people and a dog showed up. You pay uh, for the dog? That was Mabel. <laughs> I, think, I think she ran for free. And, um, and people gave extra money, actually. Yeah. And only one bartender rode on the hood of the car for you know a few blocks. That's and this is Portland Cocktail Week, so obviously there's a lot going on with That's alcohol. Right, yeah. The run was supposed to start at 10. I remember DDO actually showed up at 9. DDO. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And said, let's go. Let's, let's do this. And um, I was very impressed by that. It was a good turnout. It was a good result. It made me feel very good. And yeah. that was the beginning of saying, we got to do more of this. That's so amazing. then we had a soccer tournament for bartenders from around the country. And and then now we do five days worth of exercising and running a tail of the cocktail and individual classes for USBG chapters around the country as well. Focus on health. Focus, focus on, on yeah, innovation. It's, uh, it's, it's No, it's mostly health. It, uh, yoga and um, we're sponsoring a soccer team of yeah. partners in Portland and uh, spinning. And there was one time we had a baseball game between Kansas City bartenders and St. Louis bartenders. That's a good match. Right before they actually went to see the real professionals yeah, against yeah. each other. And uh, we did the foraging trip from Denver and a snowshoeing trip from Boulder and some things like that. It's kind of cool. We're trying to adapt to whatever that city likes that's going to get them off their butts. Right. Um, because it's also super easy not to have anybody show up when it's not the right choice. That's right. Yeah. Well, so, you know, when we take this inventory of all the kinds of things that you've done, all the kinds of things that places that you've been, mm-hmm. it's been a good run. Yeah. <laughs> it's been pretty fun. Yeah. It's, uh, I believe that experiences shape the future of your life. 
Yeah, it's like trying on shoes and knowing, understanding which one works well. And um, I try to learn from all of these experiences. And I do, um, I, I strongly believe that it has shaped my knowledge platform mm -hmm. and also the resilience you were talking about, the ability to deal with conflict yeah. and uh, not to get irked by it too much. And, um, you know, for, you go from one place to another place and then you go to another place and you go to another place. As long as you're moving in the right direction and you're consistent by your values, you're building, right? Yeah. And um, it's working for me, yeah. Seems I like what like I'm it. doing. Yeah, I work hard. I, you know, sometimes I don't sleep. Sometimes I get sick, as you might know. Yeah. And, uh, but if I didn't love it, it would never work. Wouldn't matter what. <laughs> no. Well, so I've got, because... You know, I've talked to a lot of people and I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs yeah, yeah. and I've talked to a lot of people from different backgrounds, but you have such a unique background. There's a bit of conflict. There's a bit of success. There's ups and downs. Trials yeah, a and lot of conflict. A lot of it. I want to know, and this is my last question to you, because one, well, one, I know that this isn't over. I know that you're going to do more. You're going to yeah, find absolutely. other ways to innovate. You know, it's just something I know, right? Yeah. But for you, and I ask this question of all my guests, you are at your favorite bar in the world, mm -hmm. wherever that may be. Yeah. You're drinking some cachaca or okay. maybe a glass of wine, depending what you're in the mood for. You can sit there and engage any person living or deceased in a conversation. Who would you want to sit there and have a drink with and just talk, have a conversation? You know, I try not to think about people and favorite things and favorite books and favorite fair, movies sure. but i actually like to talk to the common people i find myself catching a ride a taxi or an uber whatever in new york that has the biggest diversity of this country yeah with somebody who's from some country that i hardly even know anything about mm. and i start a conversation i ask how do you like living in america and and then it's just the floodgates open yeah. right and the conversation is astonishingly unique interesting and it gives me perspectives that I as an immigrant did not have because I did not know that country was going through so much turmoil right. and what this guy's going through and his family at home is going through is astonishing so I found myself sitting in a taxi for 20-30 minutes after we've arrived and I'm talking to the driver and those are the most valuable conversations that I actually have with people those are the ones that stick with me and that's exactly what I've experienced here your background it's profound to me again it's been violent it's been <laughs> full of conflict but full of love as well yeah so the kachas has been brilliant and i got to take a picture of all these amazing <laughs> all right. bottles that you have but uh, thank you so much for sharing thank you for being intrepid being bold not being afraid to be a guy who speaks his mind i've heard wonderful things about you and i can't thank you enough for sitting down and chat, chatting with me Dragos. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you. It's very nice to be able to express some of these sentiments. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks so much. You bet. Thank you. Well, there we have it. What do you guys think of Dragos Exente? It's an amazing brand, that Nova Fogo. The Prata is wonderful. The oak is a great expression of this sugarcane spirit. But the thing that's even more compelling is how intelligent Dragos is. He sees opportunities. He doesn't know how to speak English. He learns. He wants to write, so he learns how to write. He wants to start a spirits brand, so he designs a bottle. He embraces an aesthetic, and he uses his passion for both humanity and health itself to develop a really lovely spirit, but yet a really, really captivating visually and aesthetically brand. 
Drago Shit was brilliant to get to sit down and chat with you. Incredibly educational. Thank you for sharing your story, the ups and downs, the topsy and the turvy. And I am really, really proud of your efforts to make sure that people in this industry stay healthy and at least know how they can stay healthy. So thanks, everybody, for listening to Show to V with Mike G. No matter if you're addicted to the Great British Baking Challenge and understand that there are only three seasons on Netflix, but yet there are far more on BBC Online. Or if you're really looking forward to visiting France here in a few weeks to sip some fine Calvados, please keep dancing.